in that story. If you have a Bible this morning, would you please turn to Philippians chapter 4? We're going to break from our series in um, Galatians. Uh, as we begin this week, our emphasis on the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Um, and this morning, we're going to talk about giving to the gospel. Giving to the gospel. But before we begin, let's join together in a word of prayer. Lord, we gather together again in your sight to hear from you. I pray, Lord, that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts willing to hear, believe, and obey your word, Lord. I ask, we ask, uh, not that we would just hear a sermon, Lord, but that we would hear a word from heaven this morning, that you would speak to us through your word, change our viewpoint, give us the mind of Christ to see the world the way you see it, Lord, regardless of how different that view is from the way everyone else sees it. Help us to see with your eyes, O oh Lord. So speak to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> So this morning, I'm going to talk about giving to the gospel. I want, I'm going to, I want to read this verse, this uh, few verses to you from the book of Matthew as we begin, and then share with you an illustration um, from Randy Alcorn's book, The Treasure Principle. It's a very short book. It's about 100 pages. It's a book on Christian stewardship. I highly, highly recommend this book, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. But here's, here's the verse from Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Randy Alcorn, in his book, The Treasure Principle, this is an illustration he gives. He says, imagine, imagine you're at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you are a northerner. You plan to move home as soon as the war is over. While in the South, you have accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now, suppose that you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate money? If you're smart, there's only one answer. You should immediately cash in all your Confederate currency for U.S. currency, the only money that will have value once the war is over. Keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your short-term needs. As a Christian, you have inside knowledge of an eventual worldwide upheaval caused by Christ's return. This is the ultimate insider trading tip. <laughs> Earth's currency will become worthless when Christ returns. Or when you die, whichever comes first. And either event could happen at either time. Investment experts known as market timers read signs that the stock market is about to take a downward turn, then recommend switching funds immediately into more dependable vehicles, such as money markets, treasury bills, or certificates of deposit. 
deposit. Jesus functions here as the foremost market timer. He tells us once and for all to switch investment vehicles. He instructs us to transfer our funds from earth, which is volatile and ready to take a permanent dive, to heaven, which is totally dependable and insured by God himself and is coming soon to forever replace earth's economy. Christ's financial forecast for earth is bleak, but he's unreservedly bullish about investing in heaven. Where every market indicator is eternally positive. There's nothing wrong with Confederate money as long as you understand its limits. Realizing its value is temporary should radically affect your investment strategy. To accumulate vast earthly treasures that you can't possibly hold on to for long is equivalent to stockpiling Confederate money, even though you know it's about to become worthless. According to Jesus, storing up earthly treasures isn't simply wrong. It's just plain stupid. Today we're going to talk about giving to the gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ will soon return to turn the world on its end really does change the way we look at the world and change the way we look at money. And so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. So if you have your Bible and you're able and willing, please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. And we're going to look Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. Beginning in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. For you, uh, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever. Endeavor. Amen. The Word of God. You may be seated. We're going to see three things from our text today the secret of contentment, the sacrifice of giving, and the supply of God. The secret of contentment, the sacrifice of giving, and the supply of God. First, the secret of contentment. So, to give you a little background about the book of Philippians, this is one of Paul's prison epistles. He is in jail. Paul, Philippi, is a, is a major city, a Roman colony um, <clears throat> in the Roman uh, region of Macedonia. <clears throat> and he traveled through Philippi. You remember he was, in, he was jailed in Philippi, actually, and that's how we hear about the conversion of the Philippian jailer. <clears throat> but he has moved on from Philippi, and, and Paul is now in jail for his proclamation of the gospel, and he is thanking in this letter the Philippians for their kindness to him. They have sent to him 
help. We can presume monetary and, and material resources by the hand of a man named Epaphroditus. And he's thanking the Philippians for their kindness. And Paul says, notice here, when he writes this letter in verse 11, he's saying that, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in any situation to be content. In other other words, Paul is able to say, even in prison, and by the way, uh, very different from our present situation, if you were in prison, they didn't didn't feed you. They didn't really take care of you. you. It was your loved ones who had to come visit you and provide for you. And so he's in prison. And yet Paul says, Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. In other words, Paul is able to say that in prison he really has no need. How can Paul say that he really has no need? It's because, Paul says, that he has learned the secret of contentment. Let me ask you a question. Have you learned that secret? Paul says he knows that how to be humiliated. That's brought low. It means how to be humiliated. He knows how to have little and how to abound. He knows how to have plenty and to be hungry, to have abundance and to be in need. Paul has learned to stay content in whatever situation he finds himself. How is your contentedness? How is your peace? If God took away all you have, would you still bless the name of the Lord? If you lost every possession, material possession that you owned and every child that you bore, would you say with Job, naked I came into this world and naked I shall return? God has given and God has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Paul had a secret. And it changed the way he looked at the world. He learned a lesson about being content in whatever circumstance the Lord has placed him. What was that secret? Paul says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That's the secret. What was Paul's secret? Jesus was Paul's secret. Jesus was Paul's secret. How does Jesus give Paul strength? There's at least two reasons that I can think of biblically in, in, in consider, concerning how Jesus gives Paul strength. First, Jesus gives Paul strength through his example of sacrifice. Jesus gives Paul and us strength to be content in any circumstance through his example of sacrifice. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake... He became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You see what Christ has done? Christ, the king of heaven, worshipped and adored by angels, became, took on human flesh, became man to be falsely accused and condemned and crucified by his own creatures. Why? He was homeless. The only thing that the God of the universe owned while he was a man was the shirt on his back. Why? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The Bible says, Ephesians chapter 1, In him we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you have Jesus, my friends, you're rich. 
If God can make himself nothing for us, ought not we who really are nothing? Cannot we make ourselves nothing? Why? So that just as Christ has made us rich, we too can make others rich. In other words, we get to embody Christ because he has done the unthinkable for us. We can do the unthinkable for others. We're empowered by his example. And because we have been deeply loved, we can deeply love others. Christ chose to do this. Why? Because by his poverty, others might become rich. And we can do the same. That's how Paul viewed his life. That's how Paul viewed his ministry. He understood that his... He knew he, he couldn't endure his sufferings for, for nothing, but he knew. He knew that by his sacrifice, by his going, by his imprisonments, by his beatings, by his shipwrecks, by his, the mobs chasing him, everywhere he went, he knew that regardless of the price that he paid through the price that he was paying, he was making others rich. So it was a small price for him to pay. We are strengthened through Christ's example of sacrifice. Secondly, we are strengthened through joy in a future hope. We are strengthened through joy in a future hope. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. And buys that field. This is what Christianity is. Christianity is finding in Jesus Christ a treasure so great that if it literally costs you everything that you had, it doesn't matter. The treasure is so great and of such incredible and inestimable value that you will not sadly... Not mournfully, not regretfully, you will joyfully sell everything that you have and and get that treasure. Why? Because it's worth so much more. That's what Christianity is. It's not going to church. It's not not, uh, praying your prayers and reading your Bibles, though you should do all those things. What is it? It 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 is a perceiving of the value of something that you never saw as valuable before. It is seeing in Christ the treasure so great that you will say, I don't care what it costs me. I must have him. When you find something that valuable, no one has to talk you into doing whatever it takes to have it. You just do it. Because you know that you would be a fool not to have that treasure. We can have content... We can be content in any circumstance. Why? Because we have joy in a future hope. What's, What's 60, 70, 80, 90 years of little to you? What is it to you when Jesus Christ says, I go to prepare a place for you? So beautiful, so pure, so spotless, so valuable. What is it to you? Because you have a home in heaven that can never be taken away. Why would we fret so much about stuff down here? And, and the, these two things, Christ's example of sacrifice and joy and a future hope, are brought together beautifully in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Writer of Hebrews writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Think about this. It says, we cast aside the things that slow us down. How? Looking to Jesus. We look to Christ's example for us. And what was Christ's example for us? It's what it says. Jesus, for what? For the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. What made Jesus do what he did? Because he had joy in a future hope. You see it? Jesus knew that if he trusted and obeyed God the Father because he made himself nothing, taking, uh, being, taking the form of a servant, being uh, made in the likeness of men, that by so doing, God would give him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus looked to the joy set before him and was able to endure anything. And so we look to Jesus and like him, we look to the joy set before us. And if you look hard enough, you can endure anything too. You can. We must fight for this joy. We must fight for hope. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but I'm saying it is true. The, the, the peace and the contentedness and the deep joy that we'll have at the root, even underneath, even in the midst of great sorrow, it's not that we're never sorrowful, but in the midst of great sorrow, deep down we'll have unshakable joy. That joy that cannot be taken away is in direct proportion to the certainty that you have of your future hope. Think about heaven, folks. You think enough about heaven, it's going to change the way you live today. Paul said, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Preach to yourself. The most important sermons you hear are not on Sunday morning, but it's the ones you tell yourself every day. Your mind tells you thoughts that aren't true. And the world does too. So every day you have to preach to yourself, tell yourself that's a lie and believe the word of God. And you too can have, you can find the secret of contentment. So the secret of contentment, number one. Number two, the sacrifice of giving. The sacrifice of giving, verses 14 through 18. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul, again, he's thanking the Philippians for their kindness. He says that no church, the Philippians apparently were the only church that partnered 
with him in his imprisonment, this time in his life. He's acknowledging the gift that they sent to him through Epaphroditus. There's a few, there's a few things I want us to see from this particular portion of the scripture. First, I want you to notice what Paul calls the Philippians. He says, he says um, that they have become uh, partners with him in the gospel. That's uh, verse 15. They, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Some translations translate that sharing. The word that he uses there is uh, the verb koinoneo, koine, uh, koine, which is the same root uh, of the, the, the noun koinonia, which is the word in the Bible often translated as fellowship. In, in other words, Christian fellowship. In other words, what he said the Philippians were doing was that they were literally fellowshipping with him in his ministry, in his suffering. That is, that when we give for Jesus' sake, when we give and support those who are called to take the gospel to various places, we are, in a real sense, sharing in and bearing with, as if we were with them, the ministry of the gospel. We are sharers, partakers in their ministry by our giving. So, last week, when we uh, get, took up a love offering for my friend Ryan to purchase a vehicle for his family when they arrived in Mexico, then every family who hears of the gospel of grace through Ryan by the access he was able to grant uh, granted to them by the purchase of a vehicle, we have become partakers of that ministry. We have shared in it. We have bore it with him, by him. We have fellowshiped with his ministry. This week we're focusing on the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. If you uh, look at the pastor's letter in your bulletin, you'll read a little bit about Annie Armstrong. This is a partnership with NAM, the North American Mission Board, which is the arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, which uh, supports and equips and, and, and helps partner churches with uh, church planners, planning uh, churches in North America, that is Canada and the United States. Every dime that you give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering will go to support church planners and, and church plants in North America, in the United States and Canada. And I think it would be helpful for you to know that NAM's present strategy is through... Um, is through planting churches in what they call SEND cities, S-E-N-D, SEND cities. So they have identified uh, dozens of SEND cities in the United States that have high concentrations of, uh, of lost people and, 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 and little church presence. And to, to, to use that as a focus, the, uh, a, the, the focus, the strategy of how we're going to try to reach North America, I think it's a good strategy. And here's why. Well, first of all, cities, as is pretty obvious, they have the greatest concentration of people and the greatest concentration of lostness. Cities tend to be uh, more um, 
uh, secular and less religious, and they have higher concentrations of people. And they have less concentration of churches for the people. And so I think it's a good strategy to end cities uh, affect cities have the greatest effect on culture, and that's just it's just a fact. Uh, we are influenced by uh, media outlets that are all based in cities. The people there who work in those places live in cities. The people who 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 are who control the outlets and and financial institutions and. Uh, and uh, movies and, and the arts and, and things that highly influence culture and the way people think, are, are, they're all based in cities. So there's great need. I, I believe there's, there's good reason for us to focus our church planning efforts in cities, and that's what SNAM's trying to do. Did you know in Georgia there's one Southern Baptist church for every 2,726 people? In Virginia... There's one Southern Baptist church to every 4,313 people. In Vermont, there's one Southern Baptist church to every 15,650 people. In Delaware, there's one Southern Baptist church to every 26,973 people. In Massachusetts, there's one Southern Baptist church to every 43,439 people. In New Jersey, there is one Southern Baptist church to every 75,124 people. In Rhode Island, there is one Southern Baptist church to every 87,524 people. You'll notice the people with the, the greatest uh, percentage of, of people, the uh, smallest percentage of, of people to churches, they're usually in the northeast and in the west, and they're where the largest cities are. And it's interesting to note as well that Paul, read the book of Acts, Paul had a similar strategy. Philippi was a major city. Corinth was a major city. Athens was a major city. Ephesus was a major city. Paul understood that if he could reach the cities, then he could, he could trust that the gospel would go out from the cities to the more rural areas. And so that's what Nam's trying to do. And so I'll, I say all that to say it's a worthy thing to partner with, uh, to give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Second thing I want us to see from this part, uh, this section of scripture, is that Paul notes that Paul says that he was not seeking a gift from them, but it says he says he was seeking the fruit that increases to your credit. Verse sixteen, not that I seek the gift, or verse seventeen, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. What does that mean? John MacArthur says that that it's as if Paul was saying this: It isn't that I want the material benefit in my account, but It's that I want the spiritual benefit in your account. In other words, listen, Paul is able to be content in prison whether the Philippians help him out or not. Why? Because God's going to provide for him. Whether the Philippians do it or not. It doesn't matter. God's going to provide for him, but he rejoices that the Philippians helped him out. Why? Because it bolstered his bank account? No, but because it bolstered their heavenly bank account. In other words, Paul rejoiced in their giving to him because he knew that God, would, that God was at work in their generosity and that God would see their generosity and reward it. And he rejoiced for the Philippians because of that. He rejoiced because their giving would be to their eternal credit. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. 
The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Paul was far happier because they're giving what uh, was not. He wasn't happy. He wasn't necessarily. His happiness wasn't didn't come because they're giving blessed him. His happiness came because they're giving blessed them. Jesus in Luke six thirty eight said, "Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap." For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Let's say you're cooking. You, you're going you're gonna to bake a cake. You've got, you got to put three cups of flour in the bowl. You can use a teaspoon, one teaspoon of flour at a time to fill up that bowl. It'll take you a long time. You can take a tablespoon, you can take a quarter cup, half cup, whole cup. You can get one of those giant glass things and just put the whole thing and, and dump it in there. Let me tell you something. How do you want God, what, what, how do you want God to pour blessings into your lap? With a teaspoon? With a tablespoon? Jesus, with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. And finally, what we see from this passage, note that Paul calls their financial gift to him a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable to God. Remember in the Old Testament that the essence of worship all revolved around the tabernacle and the temple. And you had to go and you had to offer animal sacrifices or you you could offer grain sacrifices or oil sacrifices or wine sacrifices. And you would offer sacrifices to atone for sin and to show you thanksgiving and give, give praise to God. And at different feasts and festivals, you would offer sacrifices to God. It was very formal, very ritualistic. But Paul, in Christ, sees that God has, has kind of changed the way that his people offer offerings to him. You don't have to go to a temple to give an offering to God. You don't have to go to a priest. The Bible says, in Christ, we are a kingdom of priests. And you take, you take that offering of your time, your money, your resources, your energy, your possessions. You give it to others in the name of the Jesus Christ and for the propagation of the gospel. And guess what? You have made an offering that smells better to God than any bull burning on an altar. You've made something that rises up to heaven and God smells it. It smells so sweet. The angels go nuts. You've made an offering to the Lord. He sees it. He smells it. So we see the secret of contentment, and we see here the sacrifice of giving. Finally, the supply of God. The supply of God. Verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To God our Father, to, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. The supply of God, Paul says. 
He tells the, the Philippians that they're giving to him, they're helping him out. He says, God's going to give you what you need. Why does, why does he say that? Well, there's, there's, I'm sure there's more, but there's at least two things that kill generosity in God's people. Two things. Greed and fear. And really, if you think about it, they're just, those things are really just two sides of the same coin. Greed, greed is believing the lie that money will make you secure and happy. It can't. Fear is believing the lie that God will not make you, will not make you secure and happy. He can. And he will. And both things are terrible motivations. God crushed both of these when he says that he will supply every need. In other words, look, that's what he says. God will, he doesn't say God will supply every want of yours. He says God will supply every need of yours. That is that, not that it's wrong to enjoy uh, nice things from time to time. But nevertheless, the Bible is very clear in teaching that we should be content with our needs. And if we have surplus, we should be free to help others who don't have their needs met. It's very clear. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, Paul writes, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Gain. It's gain for you if you're godly and content. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Let me tell you something. People say in this world money is power. Let me tell you something. God owns it all. And if you don't use your money for him, if you don't use his money for him, you're going to give an account for it. You will. It don't belong to you. Godliness with contentment it's great gain. God's not trying to take something from you. He's not, trying to, he's not trying to make you poor, miserable pauper. He's saying, look, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. You see it? And secondly, fear. Fear crushes Christian generosity. You know, Many Christians jump right in line with the world, clamoring for more stuff, saying, if I, don't, if I don't take it while I can get it, someone else is going to get it, and I'm going to be without. They fear that if they're generous, that you, you fear. We fear. I feel it, don't you? If I'm more generous, I'm not going to have my needs met. If I'm generous, we're going to fall short. If I'm generous, this and this and this. Listen. What are we saying with fear? We're saying, well, God, what, does God really care? That's what you're saying. Are we saying, does God really see? Does God really know? What does Jesus say? Matthew 6. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, 
what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on? Is not life more than food? The body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Some of you, you worry yourself to death. God wants to set you free. He sees you. He's watching you. He knows. Trust him. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. God sees. He's watching. And that is freeing. It's freeing that you don't have to live in fear because the sovereign God is for you. So as we conclude this morning, we are free to be generous in Christ because generosity gives us more of God, which in the end makes us infinitely more secure and happy than all the money and possessions in the world. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Which sounds better to you? A life that is full of fear or bitterness or greed, always looking for more, never having enough, and then dying and taking nothing with you? Or a life of simplicity and contentedness and joyful generosity for a few decades, and then you die and go to heaven and found that every dime you ever gave for Jesus Christ is waiting there. Shaken, pressed down, poured into your lap overflow. You decide. You decide. God's not trying to give something, take something from you. He's trying to give something to you. And this is the hope that we have in Christ. And we're going to close today. And I, I, and I extend this invitation in here this morning. This hope of heaven is only for those who have turned from their sins And believed in Jesus Christ. And I want to give you that unshakable hope today. So that you can know today the joy of contentedness 